0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasa Zaitz. In the previous episode, we talked about healthcare hospital innovation from the Canadian perspective. Today, we're going from a country with 38 million people and 10 million square kilometers to a country with only 36,000 square kilometers and 23.5 million people, Taiwan. Taiwan spends only 6.4% of its GDP for healthcare, but the satisfaction with the system is high as is the state of digitalization. I spoke with Professor Ju Chuan Jack Lee a pioneer of artificial intelligence in medicine and translational biomedical informatics. Professor Lee is editor-in-chief for BMJ Health & Care Informatics journal. He's also the elected president of the International Medical Informatics Association and has devoted himself to evolving the next generation of AI in patient safety and prevention. He has been deeply involved in biomedical informatics development in Taiwan and international cooperation on various continents, including Asia, America, Europe, and Africa. We spoke about the state of healthcare digitalization and AI in Taiwan. Enjoy the show and do leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you haven't yet, Do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now let's dive in.
1: Professor Jack you're a practicing dermatologist and you're actually also a specialist for AI. More specifically, what interests you most is how can AI improve patient safety. Can you tell me a little bit of a background where does your interest in AI derive from?
2: AI, artificial intelligence itself, is a very attractive term. You know, when I was in high school, or I see a movie called War Game, and then in the movie, the AI became much smarter than human and won the war—the war between Russia and, and the—you know—it's the Soviet Union, the States. So I was quite impressed with AI. I, so after my medical school, I almost went to computer science school. But then I ended when went to medical school. So after my medical school, I think I would like to find a chance to learn more about AI. So I so I went to the United States for a PhD in medical informatics, which is studying the IT application in medicine. But specifically, I like to study the AI application in medicine.
1: You work in Taiwan, and I wonder to which extent is maybe developing AI easier in Taiwan compared to other countries because the medicine or EHRs have been digitalized for uh, very long. So perhaps if we just outline a little bit the environment that you work in, Taiwan has 23 million people. It has a universal healthcare system and it seems that it's working very well. It it has very high satisfaction rates. And what's most interesting, especially for the Western countries is the low GDP that's attributed to healthcare. So it's less than 7% of the GDP and the average in Europe is between 9 to 10. And in US, it's skyrocketing at 18, 19%. So can you tell me a little bit about the healthcare system in Taiwan and how is it possible that it's so successful? with so little money.
2: Okay. It, it this is a like a three part question. So the first part is uh, the electronic house record development. Uh, exactly like you said, when I was doing AI in the US, I realized the key for studying AI or, you know, doing AI research is about knowledge and knowledge came from so we need data after i i went back to taiwan in 1995 i was i really i started to realize if we do not transform all our hospitals into using a electronic health record then we're never going to use ai medicine successfully and that coincides with the year of the national health insurance which is the universal health care system that you just mentioned so we started in 1995 and the national, the universal health care actually triggered a very important movement, which is electronic claiming, meaning the national health insurance require all the hospitals and clinics. Okay, in Taiwan, there are, by back then, there are 600 hospitals and 20,000 clinics around the country. They're required to submit their claims for insurance in the electronic fault. that kind of triggered every clinic in hospital to install computer systems. Okay, not necessarily the electronic house record. It's more of the electronic billing system and the electronic claiming system. But then I was, well, I was part of the effort to transform, to use that trend and transform all this electronic billing system of the hospitals into electronic house record. It's for the hospitals. Money, of course, is always high priority. But then if you already have a computer system, why only collect data for money? Please also collect data for patients. (laughs) After all, you're a hospital. Your core business is about patients. So it's not very difficult to convince all the hospitals that electronic health record or patient data is at least as important as billing data, okay? That sounds a little weird. It took me a while, like 10 years, to convince all the hospitals. So from 1995 to 2005, that is the 10 years I I came back to Taiwan, and I was trying to convince all the major hospitals and the government that it's very important that we transform the system. Now we have the computers, because back in... The 1980s, not may, maybe only 10 hospitals are using computers. But after that, after 1995, the national health insurance, like, almost everybody are using it. So if we established the electronic health record standard for uh, Taiwan, of course, we adopt HL7 and also the uh, amount of international standards. So the national health insurance or, or the ministry of health, they decided they want to provide a made incentive for hospitals that actually did the electronic health record system. It's a little bit like the UN, United States High Tech Act. There was a, a huge budget, right, for all the hospitals to transform their health, electronic health record five years in the U.S. And if after that five years, it become a punishment if you don't do it. Right? So in Taiwan, there are only incentive; there was no punishment. But it became part of the hospital accreditation. So if you don't do electronic health record, you can lose your, you know, your national health insurance qualification. Then it will be very serious for the hospital. I was up in the middle of it because when I came back to Taiwan in 1995, they started national health insurance. So I was using the train. So, after 10 years, almost all the major hospitals are using uh, electronic health record. So, we have the data. I was joking, in order to drink a milk, I have to raise a cow. And in order to raise a cow, I have to buy a farm, okay? So, electronic health records system in the hospital, so they're like the farm, okay? So, now with the farm, there are cows that can range on the farm, and then eventually they'll have milk. Milk will be the knowledge that I need for artificial intelligence. So your second part of the question is, why is this efficient so it can be a small part of GDP, but still have the highest satisfaction that we ever had in any public policy? The healthcare system in Taiwan is probably the most satisfied policy in the history of Taiwan. The reason, one reason being universal coverage was a good decision, because before that, a lot of families, if they got very sick or they have to go undergo a major surgery, that became a very important financial burden. So if you're unhealthy, you become poor. And when you're poor, you become more unhealthy. So that itself is a vicious cycle. The universal coverage actually broke that vicious cycle. So nobody would be worried about the uncertainty in the healthcare problem as a financial burden anymore. So everybody's happy. Okay. Which is still a happy story at back then. People are still happy about it. And the first day national health insurance started, it's a centralized system, so there's no like regional department, There's just one big system. And the first day that it started, it's a network system Well, I mean, it's envisioned as a network system the network actually was established after 5 to 10 years to complete but it, it was electronic to begin with and then finally become a, a real time network actually our national health issues or nhi they can see how many patients are seeing are are, are visiting any hospital any clinic in real time okay so private or public hospitals, private or public clinics, they can see in the real time. So they know 10 o'clock this, uh, in the morning today, how many patients are seeing which hospital, which clinic, uh, because it's all networked together. Mm-hmm. Um, although each hospital and clinic, they use their own system. It's not a public, it's not like a government system. Everybody use and maintain their own system, but all the data are synchronized almost in real time. So... I think that's one reason why it's so efficient. The overhead is the is minimal. In in, in the US, insurance management, the overhead right. is about twenty five percent. In Taiwan it's zero point five percent. You know, the overhead. Because it's so all yeah. electronic and it's everything is automatic. So and because
1: it's a universal system. And so you don't have competition and thousands of insurance companies that have to have individual contracts with healthcare institutions. I do wonder if you have a network in hospitals, each has uh, its own IT system. When the digitalization happened already 20 years ago, what were the requirements in terms of data standards And what's the the current state of interoperability? So you can actually see data and do research on a national level for AI also, for example.
2: So I was joking that, um, that among the 500 hospitals, there are only 500. Among the 500 hospitals, we probably have 600 different systems. Because all hospitals develop their own system or they modified. If they bought it from a commercial system, they modified it very extensively. So they became different system. Back in 1999 or 98, there was a discussion whether we should have a public system, meaning the government should sponsor a universe, uh, like, like a standard edge hospital system. And then give it to everybody. Like in, as far as I understand in Netherlands, they have this public free system for all the clinics, right? In Taiwan, we decided we don't want to do that because it's already a ecosystem, uh, a free market for all the HIS developers. So if the, if the government publish a system, then all the developer would go disappear. And it's bad for economy. So we decided, no, we don't want you to use the same system. We do not force you to do that, but we want you to have the same data standard where you connect to the network. Inside the hospital, you do whatever you want. You use any data format you want, but when you go, when the data goes out of the house, it has to be complied to a standard. Back in 1998, there was no such standard. Or 1999, there was no such thing there. So we started to do a, what we call Taiwan electronic medical record template or TMT in short, not TMT, the TMT electronic house record or electronic medical record template at the time. So we started to have 10 adoptions, 10 hospitals, 20 hospitals, but then the government incentive came in. So we have 200, 400. Now it's everybody's use and the national health insurance also have their own standard on coding because it's a universal system. When they started doing the electronic claiming, the coding is already standard or you cannot claim, right? When you do claiming, you cannot claim in, in free text. You have to claim in coded format. So like a drug, you cannot just say, oh, this is the penicillin. You have to say this is ATT 0211. So everybody's using the same codes. That kind of solved the fifty percent of the problem, and we proposed and started to use the, the, the electronic medical record template to solve the other fifty percent. So now, whenever a patient, you know, goes to a hospital and put in their smart card, which is a, a token like a key, right? So they put in a smart card in, in the reader. Every clinic and every hospital, the smart card reader, health smart card reader, and you put it in the card. And the doctor will put in a smart card, So it's a two-pipe your authentication system. When two pads are in the reader, smart card reader, you're able to retrieve everything this patient experienced in the system. So we will know, yeah, in the past six months, you've visited three clinics, two hospitals, and these are the drugs that are prescribed. These are the diagnoses. And these are the lab results. So we don't have to repeat all the maps. And we don't have to ask the patient, what drugs are you on? The patient will never know, but it's all electronic, so we can just read everything. And whatever we put will be added to that repository. The smart card was designed back in two thousand and four, and so it was very small. We it was designed to put medication information and in, and all the information in the card, but it's too small. So now everything is on the cloud. The card becomes just, but then also some. Offline information, even without a network, there are some information on the card that you can use, like allergy, like catastrophic disease history and stuff like that, blood type, mm-hmm. stuff like that.
1: Sounds, or, sounds pretty much like heaven for public health research. Is there a lot of public health research done on all this data and has anything yes. specifically interesting been discovered, especially in the last year with COVID?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. Um What I was describing is about patient care. So patient care, we could look at each patient's history and their trajectory and where they go. Almost no matter where you visit, your whole personal electronic health record would come with you. Right. Um Back to the research topic, there is a repository, centralized repository, anonymized for research. Because for research, you cannot see the patient identification and stuff like that. That is available, but it's under quite strict limitation, meaning it's a plenary approach. You have to go to a specific data center without bringing anything, not naked, but almost like electronically naked. You cannot bring yourself on it. So if you go in there and you memorize what you're trying to do and you go in there and you can access all the data in there, in the data center, but then all the results have to go through a committee. Like somebody called it a data steward, you know, a committee approved that this is not violating privacy ethics and, and all that in order to take them out of the center. Okay. So usually you are not allowed to take patient level data out of the center. You can take statistics. Or, you know, accumulated collected data, but not patient level. Because when you go in there, the kind of access you have is amazing. You have access to all the 23 million people for 25 years. Okay. And that means billions. That means like 12 billion, 15 billion outpatient visits, hundreds of uh, millions of inpatient stays. And all that. And it's a very big database, so it takes a lot of computing and all that. So we can do research like that. One has been discovered. This database alone supports and generates about a thousand, one thousand two hundred papers every year. You <laughs> know, just based on the database. So a lot of scholars would apply to access and they would write papers. So. About once more than 1,000 paper every year generated from that database. Okay. Mm-hmm. Your you know, final part of the question is about COVID-19. It's fortunate and it's also unfortunate that we don't have a lot of COVID-19 cases. Right until May this year, which is like last month, we had zero cases for already 200 days. And we had seven deaths. And we had 600 cases, that's it, until May. So we don't have made much COVID-19 data we can do research about. That's unfortunate.
1: So what went wrong in May when the numbers started increasing? We're running in May?
2: Yeah, I think we were doing a pretty good job for uh, uh local control. But one, the reason we're, we're so good, we're almost a realistic low, seven 600 cases. Compared to any country in the world, there is no such thing. The reason is because we were early. We started to block the direct flight between Taipei and Wuhan back in January twenty third. Okay, and US blocked that same flight two weeks later, and the Europe another two weeks later. So that makes all the difference because. Some countries start to block this direct flight. That Wuhan people would fly to all the other countries. And the more they're blocked, the more they go to Europe. So U.S. and Asia started to block Wuhan. And Europe is still open. So then they went to Europe. Early has been the key for us to be successful. Back before May. But there was one problem still about flight. We have international pilots that we did not require a two weeks quarantine when they made. It. Because for them, if we require two weeks' quarantine, then they cannot fly. Right. Then the whole um airline industry become a problem. So we only require a three day quarantine for pilots. And that's the only person, the only type of profession when you came back from outside of the country, you get a three day quarantine. Everybody else is two weeks, fourteen days. And the pilots were not very compliant in the three days after quarantine. They just go see their girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. And they tend to have many girlfriends in many different countries. I'm not saying, you know, that's bad, but anyway, and they infected all this. They bring this infection from outside. So it's crazy. That became the crack for the whole system. And, and we didn't even know that because we, one reason that we, that this crack become head of a pandemic is because now we have about 16,000 cases. One month ago, we have only 600 cases total, totally, not every day, totally. Now we have 1600 cases, uh, 16,000 cases totally and about 600 death. Yes. The reason the crack become a pandemic is because we did not do a widespread screening for everybody, like some country, they did a widespread screening, right? We did not. And the reason being it, the prevalence rate is, was so low that it did not justify a widespread screening. So where our success become our, you know, problem Yeah, because we're so sensible so we did not do this widespread screening and we're not urging on vaccination because nobody wants to get a vaccination. We we had, we started doing AstraZeneca vaccine since April, but nobody wants to get it. So the government decided we don't want to buy it. Although we order a lot, but we let other countries use it, the quota, because we, nobody wants to get a vaccine because there's no cases. So our success cannot become our failures.
1: <laughs> Is the interest for the vaccines increasing now?
2: Oh, yeah. Now everybody wants a vaccine, you know, it's like crazy. So now we don't have enough vaccine. Everybody's like, when is my turn to get a vaccine? Right back in April, I was, when I was getting a EstraZeneca vaccine, my whole hospital, my, ho- my whole department of dermatology, nurses, doctors, uh, and every, everyone, no one wants to get it. Only I get it. Okay. I was the only one who get vaccinated in April in my whole department. Because people think, oh, yeah, why don't we do it later, you know, when we need it. And now, one month after, everyone is trying to get vaccinated. Hopefully, we have already, in the past two weeks, we vaccinated about 10% of the population. Uh, Hopefully, we will, you know, catch up.
0: I hope you're enjoying the discussion with Professor Jack Lee so far. One announcement, if you're a healthcare practitioner working in the U.S., See the link in the show notes to earn credits for your continuous medical education. Now back to the discussion with Professor Jack Lee.
1: There's one thing that's interesting about Taiwan as well, is the fact that it's not a member of WHO. Can you maybe say a word or two about why that is?
2: Of course, it's because of China. China always claimed that we are... Part of them, but Taiwan has been independent since 1949. We have our independent military, tax system, institution, everything's not. If Chinese people ought to go to Taiwan, they need them. So how, how can it be the same country? Anyway, China has always been claiming Taiwan as a province of China, part of China. So in the WHO, they insisted that we cannot become a member because they're already a member. And they would take care of us. And the way they take care of us is saying, we can give you vaccine if you decided to become part of us. <laughs> and they will give you vaccine. So that's the way they took care of it. That's unfortunate that we've never been uh, a formal member, not even an observer in WHO. And that's also fortunate back in last year. That's why we can disregard early comfortableness with Wuhan, you know, WHO was very comfortable with China when it all began. But we don't trust that WHO that much because we're not part of the member. We don't have to comply with WHO. That's why we started early and had a better a result. We want to become part of the WHO.
1: If we go back a little bit to the digitalization of uh, healthcare. Looking at the statistics, it's admirable. You achieved close to 90% adoption of electronic medical record systems and a lot of facilities managed to transition from stage six to stage seven on the scale of the healthcare digitalization. I still wonder, one thing that was really interesting to me was the research done by Interlink that says that even though the IT systems are there, basically hospitals are facing um, many similar issues than other countries, which is that you can uh, implement a system But you also need to invest very much into the support of the users, into the maintenance of the systems. And that's a challenge also here. From that perspective, how user-friendly is IT to doctors in Taiwan?
2: Actually, what you're getting into is exactly the problem. We we are seriously under-invested. For the IT system in the hospital, and so user interface is not the only problem. Because of the underinvestment, we have a huge problem on information security. The system are not safe at all. If you have a group of hackers who's dedicated, it's quite easy to break into a hospital system because they just don't have enough money. They invested quite among the money in, in building database, the database, the, the Chinese house director and all that, but they don't have money to spare, um, to invest in the information security and also the user interface. That's another problem, but it's also because of under investment, the banking system in the banking industry, they invested about 10% of their revenue into the IT system on the healthcare industry. In Taiwan, we invested only 1% to 1.5% of the revenue into the hospital, into the IT system. And in the U.S., it's about 3%. In the Europe, they're aiming for 5%, but most countries, most hospitals don't have that. Yeah. So, yeah, and, But you can say banking is very important because they handle money. But now we already know healthcare information is more important than money. If you don't have healthcare... You don't have, you have nothing. So money has become no issue. So you you imagine, oh, the banking system is very complex, right? So they invested a lot. But actually, from the software companies that I work with, healthcare system is 10 times more complex than banking system. But they only invest like one-tenth, right? 10% of the money but they're 10 times more complex than the banking system. That's why the user interface of the hospital system looked like a child's play, (laughs) because you don't have enough money to afford a good interface designer, user experience expert, and all that. You only have money to get the function done, and that's it. So it's all about underinvestment. It's not that IT people who stood in hospital are stupid or what. It's not about that. It's about them not invested enough.
1: That always makes me wonder, how are we going to realize all the potentials of AI knowing the low investments in IT? So before starting to complain about this challenge, I would rather hear a little bit more about the kinds of research that you did in terms of AI. So we talked a little bit about the challenges with the user interface. One huge issues are the alerts that uh, doctors get when they use decision support systems. We know that they ignore 90 to 96 percent of them because there's just too many and you actually did some research. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yes. I'm also a clinician. So I also see patients twice a week, three times a week. Um, Alert, or sometimes people call it reminders. Okay. It's the, usually it's a pop-up dialogue that stops you from doing things. And you have to read and, and you say, okay, or now, okay, or whatever response you you, you have. It's something we love and hate, and as doctors, we hate them like 99% of the time. And and we love them like 1% or 0.5% of the time when they get got it right. We love it. But when they got it wrong, it's a total waste of time. So every time when I get this alert, I was angry inside for three seconds. And then after I came back, I forgot what I was doing with the patient, you <laughs> know, and I have to rethink everything. Of course, after 20 years, the three seconds become like 0.3 seconds, but still it's uh, uncomfortable that when you're doing something with full concentration and a lot of brain activity and suddenly there's, a, there was a stop sign and tell you things that's, that's really not important at all. Like a stop sign saying you should stop at the stop sign. That's totally useless, but still you have to stop and look at this. What the site says, it says, stop at stop sign, it. but it's still useless. use So anyway, the reminders problem is, and in the hospital I'm working with, and as you described, the paper we just published, the, the physicians received 2 million reminders in eight months. Okay. Okay. And it's not even a huge hospital. It's a hospital with like, 300, 400 physicians and they, and together they receive 2 million reminders only in eight months. Okay. And if you count that, like every reminder stop the physician from doing their job for three seconds and you multiply that by 2 million, that's 6 million seconds. That's a lot of physician time and it's quite expensive. So our alerting system is actually making hospital losing money because they're wasting precious tradition, time. That's why we did a study, and we want to optimize what alerts should and should not be there. And the reason the alerts is the reminder, so the alerts are what they are today, is because the one who designed each alerts, they don't care about physicians. They only care about themselves. For example, if a pharmacy department decided to do a drug-drug interaction alerts, okay? That's what we did. I went through the whole process. Back in 2007, we decided we want to have a full-blown drug interaction alerts in our hospital, and I was the CIO. So we looked at the drug interaction textbook, and there was 12,000 different drug interactions. Imagine implement all that 12,000 transaction or DDI into our system. Then the physician will get reminders, 10 reminders every time. Every patient, they'll get 100 reminders. It, it will be totally infeasible. So I, I discussed with the pharmacy department. Let's look at among the 12,000, how many are clinically significant? You know, nobody even asked the question whether it's clinically significant. It's textbook significant. So academically it's significant, but how many are clinically significant? And and then after a while they came back to me and said, oh, about 700 are clinically significant, all of 12,000." And then I asked them how many of the 700 can happen in a hospital? Because we don't have all the drugs in the world. Some of the drugs we don't even carry. They said about 400. Okay. And then I asked them, amount of 400 clinically significant drug trial alerts. How, what happened the most frequent? They, they told me, oh, one of the most frequent interaction is potassium. is diuretics and didrepsin and uh, diuretics. So if didroxene is the digitalist for heart problem. Diuretics is a drug for helping urination of the patient. Okay. If you put these two types of drugs together, it's very likely that you will suffer low Potassium level, which is uh, electrolyte, right? Potassium level, so you uh, suffer from hypopotassium. But if you are oh, hypokalemia, that means potassium level in the blood is low. So always we can alert hypokalemia, right? And I asked them if we implement that EDI, that alert, how many alerts are we going to get? They say, oh, uh, hun- hundreds or thousands per month. And I asked them, who gets the who will get the alert? They said, cardiology. So I called the cardiologist and I said, guys, don't you let digitalis and diuretics together will cause hypokalemia? They said, of course we know. Then I asked them, why are you still doing it? They said, of course we add potassium to, uh, to our orders, to our prescriptions. If we prescribe digitalis and diuretics, we'll add potassium to the patient. Then I said, oh, we didn't know that. And we did we did not check that. We only looked at the prescription and said, you have digitalis, you have diuretics, alert you. But they already are saving it by adding potassium to their prescription to the patient. So for them, it's a safe, totally safe order. But for the pharmacy department, it's a very dangerous drug-drug interaction. So that's the problem why so many alerts are useless. Because from the pharmacy department, from their perspective, it's teachers that have to remind you. Right. Clinicians, we already know that, and we are already compensate for that. So I call that tunnel vision. So yeah. anybody's using tunnel vision to do the alerts, and they're all siloed, and they don't talk to each other, and they don't even talk to clinicians. So that's the problem.
1: So in this case, basically, the system would only look at kind of binary relationships between drugs, and it wouldn't really check if that was mitigated in any way. So I guess that's where AI can come in. What's the most promising solutions that you're seeing or hoping to see in terms of making decision support more useful for the prescribers?
2: That's a very good question, because I asked the pharmacy department to continue the story why don't you, you know, ask the IT people to check on the, the potassium level of the patient or to check on, to, in a prescription, whether we have potassium. If we have that, then you do not show the alert, right? Don't, do not do show the alert. They said, it's not our business to check that. Our business to check whether they're DDI. Our business is not to check whether they're potassium or not. So I said, what? You know, and so... You mentioned AI. It's not just AI. It's also the perspective of looking at all the dimensions, all the different modalities or sources of data when you are making a decision support. So whatever you want to shoot an alert or you want to trigger an alert, make sure the logic behind the alert already consider all the aspects of all the data. Not because I'm one department, I'm only seeing my my own data. If I'm the lab department, the clinical, pathologist, I only look at lab. So I will alert you whenever the lab is is not uh, within the normal range. For example, I give you another example: a internal medicine doctor complained. I always got this alert for liver function. Okay, all my patients has has an abnormal liver function, and I said, "What's wrong with that? It's abnormal." So you you get alert. He said, "No, I'm a TB." tuberculosis expert, all my patients are on TP drugs, and of course their liver function will be abnormal. It's normal for us that their liver function are abnormal, so I don't need the alert. So I asked the lab department, the clinical pathology, can you check out the drug when you try to alert liver function abnormality? They said, no, it's not our job to check out the drug. We only look at that. right? So again, for every alert, we have to look at multi-dimensionality or multi-sources of, of data. You have to see the patient at a transfer. And that became a challenge also for, it's not only for the clinical department, it's also for the IT department that they don't know how to do it because there is no traditional IT methodology that can handle multi-dimensional data like hundreds of variables. For them, it's very, for the traditional IT it's very difficult. But AI, AI, especially machine learning based AI, they're very capable of handling uh, high dimension of variables like, you know, 20, 30, 100, 200, thousands of variables. They could actually handle millions of variables if you want. So I think there are several things that needs to be done. One, the clinical department has to look at more different source of data. But usually that's getting out of their expertise. They're expert in math, they're expert in medication, but they're not expert in diseases or that's why they don't want to get out of their comfort zone. But anyway, they have to get out of the comfort zone and they have to look, really look at all the data. And the second thing is IT department has to know how to adopt new AI methodology that could handle multi-dimensionality of variables.
1: You alluded very nicely to the clinical complexity behind offering meaningful personalized decision support systems. I do have a one kind of clinical questions behind that. so if you have a patient, if you have two patients and one has problematic levels of something in their body that would be alarming to the physician. so if both patients have those alarming levels of something but one is on drugs that cause that how is basically the same state in two patients normal for one and not normal for the second one. Is it the, does the duration of that abnormality also matter? So it's, not harmful for the patient or where should the patient worry? Because that's the thing. Sometimes you would get blood results and you would just get high levels or low levels of, I don't know, various uh, markers, but your doctor wouldn't see that as problematic. And as a patient, you wouldn't get it. Why is this not a problem for me if the result says that it's not in the range of normal limits?
2: So that's why I said, Lab data is only one type of the variable. So if you only look at liver function, oh, it's abnormal. But if you also look at drug data, if you also look at diagnosis, if you also look at the age and gender of the patient, all the variables together, it justifies it. So if you're on tuberculosis treatment and you're taking some of these drugs, they're bound to affect your liver function. It's abnormal. For the time you're under therapy, maybe 6 months, 12 months. But then it cures your tuberculosis in the long term. So it's still a normal phenomenon under the therapy. So, for example, if you if a person is going through cancer chemotherapy and losing hair, it's considered normal in chemotherapy. You cannot tell the doctor, because of losing hair, you should stop the chemo. But then the cancer will kill you. So there are these compromise and there are these trade-offs in the medicine. It's not always a one-way street, right? Like BDI alert, no more function, alert. So it's not a one-way street. It's a multi-dimensional variable. That, that's so, why we, one example. Another example. Yeah.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: What examples go, are you know, another example? Pass. Yeah, it's. Uh, Yes, yes. So for example, if a patient is prescribed insulin, okay, how do you know that this is a correct prescription or wrong prescription? Okay, insulin is for lower blood. most people would know. You, you have to check whether the patient has diabetes and maybe how serious the diabetes is to determine whether the insulin is right or not. So it's a very complex decision. It's not just you write a rule if the patient is diabetic, or if the diagnosis has diabetes, then insulin is okay. It's not like that. It's not a one-way street. It, it, you need to consider age, the type of diabetes, whether the patient is pregnant or not. There are many variables, right? Other comorbidities, whether the patient have hyperlipidemia, hypertension, you have to consider all that, not just a one rule. But many IT system they tend to look at the look at the problem as a single dimension. That's why we we have one of a group of my students, they started a company called Esop that's dealing with the drug appropriateness problem. So in order to determine which drug. In this whole prescription is problematic. You have to look at all the variables, lab, procedure, you know, diagnosis and see if all the other variables support that drug. If the drug is not supported by all the other variables, maybe it's wrong. So that's how complex it is. Traditional IT rules doesn't apply. Okay. If you only, if so, I, so there are two, problems. One is the department only look at one variable. But if the department decided they want to look at many variables, the IT people would say, we don't know how to do that. Sorry. Make it simpler. (laughs) It's too complex. We don't know how to do it. Or we spend too much time. We don't want to do it.
1: Because you really need AI models and various uses of AI to solve that. And we're at the very early stages of that, not to mention the basically the costs of development of such solutions. And then there's another problem with AI. Even if you do design a solution for a specific hospital, it doesn't mean that that model is going to be... Uh, transferable to another hospital, and you actually did um, another research where you were assessing the international transferability of machine learning model for detecting medication error in the general internal medicine clinic. What did you find out?
2: Yeah, it's a big problem that machine learning AI solutions, whether it's transferable or not, it's a big problem. We've seen a major example. Google had a study, imaging recognition for retinal, diabetic retina, which is the the eye problem suffered by long-term diabetes, diabetic patients. Their retina will change and and eventually patient could go blind. So they've studied, they used about 20,000 images. Retina images from India and from the U.S. And they train the machine. And then they transfer the machine to Thailand. And try to use it. And it it wasn't accurate at all because the the way Thailand do their take the photo of the retina is different from India and different from the US. So it wasn't useful. So that's a universal problem. The transferability of machine learning AI. I transfer out any AI, even if it's a knowledge based AI. Okay. Machine learning AI is like. The the whole knowledge are based on data. So the machine would come up with the knowledge itself. Knowledge-based AI is that you ask the expert, what is the solution to this question? And you've got a lot of solutions. And you put that in the computer, right? But those type of AI suffer from a transferability problem. Meaning if you transfer that to a different site or different country or different setting, you've got a totally different response. It's still a very complex problem. that people are still studying it. But what we found out was that when we transfer a knowledge base about drug use, drug safety and drug use, we transfer the machine learning AI from Taiwan to the U.S., it's still about 70% useful. Okay. Back in Taiwan, it's 90% accurate. When we transfer to the U.S., it's become like 70% useful. But the solution is to use a smaller database in the U.S. and learn from it to update the knowledge. And it becomes like 85%. So meaning you don't have to retrain the whole thing. In Taiwan, we build the knowledge based on 12 billion prescriptions, a lot of prescriptions. But in the U.S., we don't have money and time to get that many prescriptions. So we get about 600,000 prescription from the U.S., and then 70% became 85%, so that's pretty good. So there is always, when you do a machine learning, when you do an AI transfer, there's always a local update that you need to do. That paper shows you that you don't need a very large data sets to do a local update.
1: Mm -hmm. Last question. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that according to the report by McKinsey from 2020, there's actually very low chances for automation in healthcare. So only 35% of time spent is potentially automatable. Just for a brief ending, what do you see as the most optimistic changes with AI that we could see in healthcare in the shortest time possible, let's say next 10 years?
2: Okay, it's a very long question, very good question and take three hours to answer, but I'll just give you one.
1: One minute. Answer.
2: <laughs> I think the key, yeah, the key is AI plus telemedicine. If we can successfully use AI in telemedicine, it will greatly save a lot of physician time. Because a lot of time, the patient goes to the physician, and the physician say, oh, this is nothing you can go back. It's a waste of physician time. But the patient didn't know. The patient could not have known that this is the result. If they would have known, they wouldn't go to the physician office at all, because it's also a waste of time for them. So if we can use AI plus telemedicine, wrong. if we use AI extensively in telemedicine, what we will reduce about 50% of Ineffective visit. Then the physicians are fifty percent more time. They have fifty percent more time to see real patients, and they would be free of burnout. Burnout is a, a problem for every physician in the world. They overworked because there are too many patients. When we have COVID nineteen, if you cough, you say, "Oh, maybe I have COVID nineteen. I need to go see a doctor." That will cause the burnout, and that caused over no our healthcare system. And you also waste yourself, waste time and money for yourself. It's good for nobody. But the patient didn't know. Without the help of AI and telemedicine, the patient would have to make the trip. Nobody wants to go to a hospital. The trip to a hospital is totally unfavorable. So Mm -hmm. I think the key to all that is AI plus telemedicine. And yeah, I would like to see a brighter future for healthcare if we can fully implement that into our society.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network your go-to place to research healthcare from very different aspects and stakeholders. Stay tuned!